What comes to mind when you think about the Hamptons? For a lot of people, Long Island's East End conjures up images of mansions, posh parties, and celebrities. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. My guest this morning knows a lot about the Hamptons. Dan Rutiner has lived in the Hamptons for five-plus decades and has published and edited a free weekly newspaper about the goings-on there for nearly as long. Rutiner chronicles some of his East End exploits in a new book called In the Hamptons, My 50 Years with Farmers, Fishermen, Artists, Billionaires, and Celebrities. He recently joined me in the studio to talk about it. Dan Rutiner, welcome to Cityscape. Well, thank you for having me on. Let me first of all ask you, how would you describe the Hamptons to someone who's never been there before? The Hamptons is a surprise in a way because you expect it's going to be a home of celebrities and parties and uh, that kind of thing going on. But in fact, in addition to that, it is enormously beautiful. It's uh, filled with harbors and bays and probably the most beautiful beaches on the planet and uh, farmland and fishing villages. There's even an old whaling village, Sag Harbor, which was founded around 1700 and became one of the three uh, major whaling ports in America for a time. It was even a port of entry, so people it could immigrate through Sag Harbor or bring freight through. The whole area is very gorgeous. I must say, though, today, Dan, the Hamptons intimidates me. A kid from Yonkers, sometimes I feel like I don't fit in. Well, I'm a kid from New Jersey, and I, when I got out there, I felt I didn't fit in, but I loved it. And that's really one of the reasons I wrote the book, was uh, from this perspective now, uh, there's so much that I experienced over these 50 years from this interesting position of being a newspaper publisher. I want to talk about the stories in the book. There are many stories from your time in the Hamptons. Your family moved to Montauk in the mid-1950s from New Jersey. You started what was the Montauk Pioneer back in 1960. You were 20 years old at the time. It was the first free newspaper in the USA? Yes, it was. At least I didn't know of any other. And since then, uh, since other free newspapers came along, we've advertised that fact on our masthead for 50 years, 40 years now. No one's ever challenged it. The Montauk Pioneer grew to Dan's papers in the Hamptons. That happened about 1966-67. Prior to that time, uh, when it was just in Montauk, I did everything myself. The only exception was that I didn't own a press, so I would go to a print shop, and uh, as you probably read in the opening chapter, at that time, printing was a big, messy business involving hot lead and ink. In that chapter, which is the opening chapter in the book called At the Print Shop, I described how in high school, when I was in New Jersey, um, I had become a stringer for the uh, Newark Evening News, which was a competitor to the Newark Star-Ledger at that time, a daily, and uh, we went over to the big six-story building that was the printing plant and publishing offices and editors and stuff for the Newark Evening News. And we got a tour of the place just because we were high school kids. And the sports editor took us around because he's who we were working for. We were supposed to report the different high school sports games. And he said, after the game, go to a phone booth, call us up. And uh, what I want you to tell us is just a little bit about the uh, surges and sway of the game. But other than that, you can mention uh, so who had the most points, and you've got to keep track of that and so forth. But, you know, keep it brief. You'll have three or four minutes. And uh, uh, here's uh, I'll give you an example of uh, something that once happened, which we, we don't want. He said once I, 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 uh, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and there was some 
stringer, and I heard a lot of people shouting in the background, and he said, we won, we won, and he hung <laughs> up. And he said, that's what we don't want. Yeah, I was laughing because I knew the punchline from the book. It's a, it's a great one. How did you get involved with the newspaper business? You obviously had some experience as a reporter from high school, but I know you went to college for architecture. The newspaper actually became first. I started the paper when I was an undergraduate studying English, and I had no clue as to how I could make a career out of that. Uh, I did find that I was very adamant about not wanting people to edit what I wrote in the publications that I wrote for in school. And so I thought, I, I don't think I can work for an editor and have them cut and slash what I wrote. So I didn't know what to do with that. Uh, and then I came home and I saw that uh, Montauk was this new resort town, had about 50 motels, maybe as, as 30 restaurants, uh, lots of recreation, and yet it didn't have its own newspaper. And I thought, well, I could put a newspaper here. And I thought, well, if I sold the paper, a summer paper only it would be because I was going to go back to college. So I thought, well, I could sell it. I could sell it. My dad had moved us out there because he bought a store, a, dr a drugstore, and we sold newspapers there. But um, I thought, no tourist is going to go into a store and buy a newspaper for a, a vacation for two weeks. What's he going to read, all the local news? So I thought, the only way this is going to work is if I put the, a free newspaper out in stacks in all of the motels. At that time, uh, you could, in the lobbies, uh, it would be on little side tables, but a big place for it at that time and for many, many years was cigarette machines. You mm -hmm. put them on top of the cigarette machines. So that's how this all came about, and I came out with the first edition in massive quantities and put it out, and I also knew I'd have to make the paper very attractive and very user-friendly because people would pick it up and they wouldn't know what it was because newspapers was what you paid for. So I had to make it that way in order for them to realize they really did want to read this paper. You are of the belief, Dan, that a newspaper does not have to be filled with facts. You made stories <laughs> up. I just felt from the get-go that uh, reporters, try as they might, cannot keep bias out of news stories. And to have news on one page and editorials on a different page led the reader to believe that what he was reading on the news pages was true, and I didn't think it was necessarily. I've come to the conclusion, even after all these years, that not only is that true, but also it's true that all news is opinion. This uh, has gotten you into trouble, though. You oh, got yeah. a call from Jim Jensen, the CBS Evening News host at the time, who didn't like a story that you printed. Because we were publishing in the uh, summer only, I would go away all winter, uh, and I went to the Canary Islands and there... On the beach, I met a guy who was a skin diver, who was an, a Canadian, who was making a living, living in that town. Everything was very cheap in Europe at that time. He was making a living by uh, skin diving and snorkeling and, and capturing octopuses and squid ink and uh, getting uh, squid ink for tapas, which were on the bars of this, this island. So I talked to him about it. And his prior gig, if you want to call it that, had been as part of a um, group that had been watching for the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland, and they, of course, hadn't seen it. And I just got fascinated by it, and I thought, oh, we have a, a couple of remote ponds in the Hamptons. Why don't I put a college group, maybe from Fordham or St. John's, uh, and have them come out in the Volkswagen bus and camp on the shores of Long Pond and be waiting for the appearance of the uh, uh, monster in Long Pond? 
and I, I wrote this up, and in writing it up, I realized that there had to be a history of these sightings or they'd never come. So I wrote up a number of event, a number of sightings that had been happened prior where when they went down to look, the monster was gone. One of them was in colonial times when a woman had come running into town saying she'd seen the monster and they all went and there was no monster. And so they burned her at the stake. You know, it was that kind of that kind of thing. And I wrote it all up. And um, after the paper came out about two days later, I got this scathing phone call from Jim Jensen himself, who I had never met but had seen him on TV as the anchor for uh, CBS. And he was in a rage and he said, you call yourself a journalist, you do this kind of thing. And it turned out that it had been brought to his attention and he had ordered um, helicopters, a helicopter <laughs> to come out to the Hamptons with uh, cameramen and, and, and um uh, reporters to to interview the guys from St. John's University, and of course there wasn't any. You got burned again later on by Bobby Van, the owner of the popular restaurant hangout in the Hamptons. You made up another story about the east end of Long Island thinking about seceding from the United States of America and forming its own country, and he banned you from his establishment. Yes, um, a, a little back, quick background on that. There was a very famous Peter Sellers movie that had come out at the time called The Mouse That Roared. Uh, not many people remember it today, but it was basically about a, a small European duchy that was broke. It had a duchess who was the queen of the place, and, uh, and, and they decided to raise money by declaring war on the United States and then losing and collecting um, reparations to restore the country. And uh, in the movie, uh, they declared war and they won uh, through some totally bizarre and hilarious scenes. It was a f hilariously funny movie. And it was the bicentennial of the United States. This kid was happened in, in 1976. So I thought the eastern end of Long Island, we ought to declare war on, on the United States so we could get some kind of reparations. We were not the rich, wealthy resort we are today, although we did have a very active and exciting uh, literary world as well as an art world presence out there. And uh, they suddenly blossomed into this uh, one restaurant that uh, suddenly became an artistic hangout, uh, literary hangout, very much as Elaine's did. And um, uh, I would go there and just be like a fly on the wall, sit on, the, on a bar stool. And, you know, these were my gods. I was an English major. And then I got thrown out. Bobby told me of something that I wrote. And he just wouldn't have it. My paper in the place didn't want me there. And I went through all these emotions. I thought, oh, God, this is terrible. It's, it's uh, against free speech. I should, I should sue him, you know, or something like that. Then I thought, wait a minute. This is like something that happens to writers. They get thrown out of bars. That's good. And so I shouldn't do that. And then I thought, no, I really want to go in this bar. I'm not going to write anything about him. I, I got to talk to – I got to find a way to get back in this bar. So I spoke to his wife. She gave me the high sign about a week later and said, you can go in now. So then I was back. And later, when I started writing this book, I, I interviewed her. She's now president of the East Hampton Chamber of Commerce. And I called her up and I said, I'm writing a book about this. And I wanted to meet with you and I'll buy you, buy you a dinner at Bobby Vance because it's still there. And uh, Bobby's gone. but And she's divorced from him. But uh, we met. She has great fond memories of him, as do I. And... Um, she said he threw you out because you wrote this article about seceding from the United States. And I said, how in hell could anybody believe that? And she said, well, he did. You know, and she said, you know, he's not, he was not a literary person at all. He's a piano player. He was a Vietnam War vet. And all he wanted to do was run a bar. And it just so happened these people showed up. And that's what happened. So that was that story. Really quite remarkable, I thought. 
Speaking of piano players, you got to know Billy Joel pretty well, and you say, until this day, you are proudest of the headline, Billy Joel <laughs> Walks Into a Pole. Yeah, uh, I think you have to remember how different it was back then uh, than it is now. And we, we had our celebrities back then, and there were f far, far fewer of them, and they weren't competing with one another, and they weren't having paparazzi follow them around and happy to get their names and pictures in the paper. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. We had very few of them, one of whom was Billy Joel. Uh, another one was Edward Albee. Um, there, were, there were quite a few, and, and uh, Willem de Kooning, you know, and of course before that, Jackson Pollock. And how we felt about it as locals was very proud that they were had chosen to be in this place that we thought was so beautiful and wanted to live in. And uh, so they seemed to want to be left alone, which is why they had come out in the first place. This was before the Long Island Expressway had come even. So it was like three and a half to four hours to drive out there. And uh, so we would see them on the street and would and deliberately ignore them, you know, so that they would um, feel comfortable. And uh, so I, coming out of the movie, one, a movie in East Hampton one day, I saw him and his wife, Christy Brinkley, happily walking around on Main Street. Um, they had also just come out of the movie and they were looking in store windows and stuff and then getting back together. And it was clear they were just so in love. And we all just uh, looked at them and said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And uh, then Billy kind of skipped along and went right into a street pole, you know, a stop sign street pole, fell to the ground. And she hadn't seen it because she was looking at uh, real estate for sale in the window of a realtor. And um, we saw it uh, and did nothing because you don't want to. So I, I wrote a story about it because I thought if finally Christie hadn't seen it um, and he was badly hurt, he might have died, which a local would not have. We'd have all rushed over to help a local, but we wouldn't do that for a celebrity. And later when I met him, he told me he loved the headline I had put on that. In fact, had considered, he, he hummed a little ditty that he had written about, which was uh, Match the Headline, which he had read, Billy Joel Walks Into a Pole. I can't possibly sing it. And um, so I, I, I was very pleased that he, he, he had liked it. I had liked it, too. I thought it was the best headline I ever wrote. I didn't realize that Billy Joel went into the boat design and manufacturing business, but he did, huh? Billy Joel moved out to the East End from Levittown area, Massapequa, where he was born and raised. And he had always been in love with the blue-collar working class of Long Island, which pretty much vanished when suburbia moved in. And he lamented it, in fact, in many of his songs he did. But he originally moved out to the East End because he knew the Bonnikers were still there and the Bayman. And um, he thought, in fact, he, he had built for him a dragger. Uh, and and uh, it was a very classy dragger. He called it the, uh, the Alexa after his daughter. In any case, one of his dreams was to build a boat, which I think in some way, without his realizing it, kind of paralleled his early uh, youth, which was similar to mine, which was fast cars and um, loud radios and playing music and convertibles and stuff like that. And, and there was a very famous song, I don't even think this went through his mind, called The Little Old Lady from Pasadena, which was sung by the Beach Boys about. And he designed these boats, which are called picnic boats, uh, which are being built today. Uh, on Shelter Island by at uh, Cockles Harbor Marina, which was an old boat building area that place that he revived, and uh, he makes them. They, they're made by hand, and he sells them for about half a million bucks each. But what they consist of, and we went out in one, is they're called. As I said, they're called picnic boats, and they're supposed to look like fairly slow-moving, gentle uh, boats for 
going out to some island on a picnic and so forth, but he put in, in, into it uh, twin 350-horsepower engines. So it's a lot more like Little Old Lady from Pasadena. You know, you can come up alongside of it in a cigarette, one of those cigarette boats where you hang on to the handlebars, you know, and, and, and it can go 80 miles an hour. He can't quite, he can't match that. Uh, his boats go around 50, but they might look at one of these boats and go, ha-ha, you can't possibly go fast. And just, boom, you can just go right off, you know, in that thing. So he's still building them today. Well, I'm on the down Easter Alexa, and I'm cruising through Black Island Sound. I have charted a course to the vineyard. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarkey. My guest this morning is Dan Retiner. Dan's the author of a new book called In the Hamptons, My 50 Years with Farmers, Fishermen, Artists, Billionaires, and Celebrities. Dan's also the editor and publisher of Dan's Papers, a free newspaper out there in the Hamptons. Dan, how much different is Montauk from the rest of the Hamptons? The Hamptons goes back to colonial times. The English settled the Hamptons by rowing across from Connecticut. Uh, in 1639, 1640. Montauk really was nothing more than pasture land and ranches for the uh, cattle of the East Hampton settlers until about 1926 when a, a resort developer came in, tried to develop the whole place with huge amounts of money, but went bust in the crash. And then in the uh, right after the Second World War, about 1948-49, it began to become a popular place again, this time as a resort of motels. And when we moved there, there were 40 motels. And uh, so Montauk was seen as this kind of um, rough, tough uh, ranching town with a famous fishing village in it. Uh, with a lot of people who had were working men who would come out with two-week vacations and stay at the motels with their families and go to the beach. And it was very much looked down upon by uh, the Hamptons, which was this, they, they were like shocked that something like this could have grown up in their midst. That was really one of the motivations why I felt that Montauk should have a, a summer newspaper. And I think it was one of the reasons it was successful, because uh, the only other reading matter out there was the East Hampton newspaper, which at that time really looked down as, as it did as a reflection of the community uh, on Montauk. So it was like, you're in Montauk? Well, too bad for you. This place isn't you know, really that nice. So I said, well, it is that nice. There are many motels in Montauk, as you mentioned, including the Memory Motel. There are two women that you talk about in the book, Esther and Sarah. At first, very mysterious women to you. All you knew about them is that they like to sunbathe in Jaguar bikinis in aluminum lawn chairs outside their establishment. Yes, which was right on Main Street. In fact, they were one of the very first commercial buildings as you came into town. And it seemed to me that this was quite a way to greet uh, the visitors who were mostly family people. And I made, uh, or my mother had said, don't ever go in there. She, there was a bar there. And uh, she said, don't ever go in there. I don't know what's going on with these women. And I, I just think, you know, so I was thinking like whips, chains, you know, motorcycles. You know, I didn't know what the hell it was all about. So I didn't go in there. I didn't mention it. I didn't deliver the paper there. I didn't, um, uh, I, I didn't write about them. I didn't sell ads to them. And then one day after about five or six years of this, I thought, this is ridiculous. So I went in there and I met them and they were perfectly normal, ordinary people and uh, turned me down for an ad, which I felt good about. But uh, I noticed when I went in that there was on the wall a uh, 
a map of the world, which was done in, in uh, plywood pieces in different colors that occupied the entire wall, and it showed on with dotted lines uh, some kind of round-the-world trips. At that time, I knew that must have meant uh, steamship trips, and I didn't know what that was about, but I assumed those women had been on those trips. In any case, um, uh, time went by, and in the mid-'70s, the Rolling Stones had a tour upcoming that was going to begin down in New Orleans, and they needed a place to rehearse ahead of in a very quiet place. And Andy Warhol had an estate out in Montauk and leased it to them for a month. So they came out, and they were banging noise and you know writing songs. And one night, Mick Jagger said, well, and they had a whole entourage of people. He said, let's go down to that place, Memory Motel, where you first come in. We'll just kind of take over the bar for the night. And somebody said, no, no, don't do that. You know, that's not good place for you to go. And he said, oh, we're going to go there. I mean, Memory Motel, what could be so wrong with that? So they go there, they come in, and Esther and Sarah kind of size them all up, all these kind of scruffy hippies with all these groupies and stuff following them around, and they were all in bell bottoms and beads and stuff, and they just said, everybody out, everybody out, this is not for you, and they threw them out of the motel. And uh, the Rolling Stones subsequently wrote a very uh, nice song, which is on one of their albums called The Memory Motel, uh, which basically describes how he had an affair with a woman at the Memory Motel. And um, that just came from, from that. But what's even more interesting is that having described to you all of these events, the upshot of it is today that the Memory Motel has become sort of like a hard rock cafe, but for the Rolling Stones. And the map is still on the wall. And as I was researching this story, I came to find out, to write it for the book, I came to find out that uh, the, the two women had not built this motel. They had purchased it from this uh, kind of wasp couple who had this yacht, and they drank a lot and went around the world. So they were the ones who had gone around the world, not the two women. The two women, in fact, were Polish, and they were sisters. So this was kind of a revelation 40 years later for me. But the interesting thing, and I wrote, wrote this in the book in the Hamptons at the very end, is that now uh, adoring young people, men and women, must come into that bar and see the guitars on the walls mm-hmm. and the posters and go up to this map and say, oh, look at that, Rolling Stones Tours. You know, that's what the map must appear to mean to them now. When you first moved to Montauk with your family in the 1950s, there was an army base there known as Camp Hero that was still an active army base. And they tested out firearms there. It was quite loud. Big time. They had burrowed into the side of a hill uh, three batteries. These are giant uh, battleship-sized guns. They're called 16-inch guns because that is the dimension of the of the radius of the actual barrel. Although that gives you an idea of the shells. The shells were, you know, about the size of you know, like 100 pounds. Needless to say, they would make an enormous sound when they were fired, and the, they were out there pointing south in the belief that if the Germans, for some way, had, and the Germans did not have a notably strong um, navy, but um, if they did try to invade eastern Long Island, these guns would sink these ships. And um, periodically, you would hear these thunderous roars out there. Uh, and uh, this happened uh, probably through about 1959. We'd moved there in 1956. And you'd see huge flashes coming out from that the lighthouse out there, which because these were quite near to the lighthouse. Uh, today, these these guns, the barrels of these guns are gone, but the uh, bunkers are still there, and uh, it's become a state park. But I did write a chapter about one of the most unusual people I had ever met in the Hamptons, who was Balcom Green, who was a painter, and he had built in the 40s uh, a, an oceanfront home 
quite near this battery, just on the other side of the barbed wire. And um, it had a, he built a studio and a house out there with sliding glass and decks so looking over the sea. And I would occasionally see him in my dad's store. And after that, after I started the paper, I, I met with him further, and he'd come by my house and with his wife and so forth. And uh, he was a very quiet, very shy man who was about six foot four, six five, and he wore a rope for a belt, like a clothesline for a belt. He always was either barefoot or in sandals, even in winter. He was be pretty much covered in oil paint all the time, and he looked had a kind of he was very tall and thin, and had kind of this permanent. Uh, kind of threatening-looking scowl, which was just his happened to be his normal expression, but he was a very gentle guy. But I often imagined him out there during this uh, period when the guns were being tested, uh, painting to the sounds of those roars that would occur, and I just thought... And his work was somewhere... It was not completely abstract. It was abstract expressionist, but sometimes you could, you could tell. He, did, he was quite famous, and... Uh, did many things that appeared to be ships and storms, and that made perfect sense to me. Some of his work, of course, is, is at uh, MoMA and, and at the Modern and so forth. Talking about threatening-looking scowls, let's talk about Frank Mundus. Oh, he was uh, a hoot. Frank Mundus uh, basically uh, was the only man in Montauk uh, who went fishing with fishing boats who chose not to you know, go for swordfish or tuna or porgy or, you know, any of the other fish, but he f- completely concentrated on what people considered to be the the world's worst scavenger fish, and that's what he brought in, which were these giant sharks. Some of them he'd bring in were the size of his boat, and I once, uh, several times, I saw him come in with, with, with uh, fish lashed to the side of the boat. Well, of course, you don't catch them with rod and reel. You harpoon them, and then you have a high-powered rifle and shoot them in the head until as many times as necessary until they're dead. So uh, he became quite famous for that, and he was a very rough and garrulous figure. And um, when the movie Jaws was made um, during that era, he actually became the model for one of the four leading characters in the movie, the uh, captain of the fishing boat who is in the final scene and finally gets eaten by the giant shark. And that showed exactly what Frank was like. Um, I would go see him and he'd say, get out of here, I don't want to buy any ad from you. You know, he's polishing a gun, you know. It was a very interesting uh, time with him. And uh, one of the things he did, and I think it was to his discredit, was when the movie came out and he saw that was him. You know, the guy's, the character's name is Quint. And he tried to get them to acknowledge that, which was so obvious. Uh, and and it was not only was it obvious, it was also true because the movie was made from a book and the book called Jaws, uh, the author of it, had written it and had, had said it not on some mythical island, but had said it in the Hamptons and had called this character Quint in the fishing village of Montauk. No question who this was. Anyway, uh, Mundus did try and um, get some kind of recognition from the Jaws mania, but nothing really came his way. About 10, 15 years later, he published a book called Monster Man. Earlier, Dan, you mentioned the Dutch painter Willem de Kooning, who lived in the Hamptons. He didn't like everything that was happening in the Hamptons, though, and he boycotted a local theater as well as a beach theater. How come? All the beaches before, about 1970, were free. Not only free, and I'm talking about parking your car. There's, you still can go to every beach, but the the, the the catch is you can't park your car at every beach, and you need a sticker. Well, before 1968, there were no stickers. 
And uh, one of the beaches that was frequented by the artists was Georgica Beach in East Hampton, which is inside the village of East Hampton. And how that came about in itself is an interesting story uh, uh, about, oh, I think it was around 1951 or 52, Time magazine. This was before I got there. Um, sent a reporter out. They had just done a, a, a – Jackson Pollock had just had his picture on the cover of Life magazine, and they were all out there, and all these other painters were out there. And um, this uh, reporter said, I hear that you artists have a picnic every every week on Saturday afternoon out at Georgica Beach. Well, they had been going to that beach along with many other beaches, and they hadn't really have featured that, favored that beach in particular or had a regular picnic there, but they decided that if Time Magazine wanted to have them having a regular picnic on a Saturday afternoon at Georgica Beach, they would do so. And so they had one, and... Um, this great photograph of about 22 artists appeared in double truck, you know, two-page spread in Time magazine at the time became famous. And as a result of that, Georgica Beach became the beach to go for the artists and the writers. And in 1968, uh, they passed the zoning laws. And shortly thereafter, uh, this became the first beach in the Hamptons to be restricted. That is to say, the residents of that community could go there, but not outsiders. Well, most of these artists were not in the East Hampton Village. They were up in Springs, not far, five miles, but outside the village. And so they were quite upset. They were suddenly being thrown off their beach. And de Kooning, as a protest, he announced he would never allow Guildhall uh, to, which is the main, it's like Lincoln Center, but in a small town, to display his art. And he felt that this might pressure them into seeing the error of their ways. And uh, he, 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 for years after that, he wouldn't allow the, the work being um, displayed there. Nothing came of it in the end. The beach stayed um, exclusive for just local residents. The towns uh, have and villages have come to the conclusion that at least one beach in each of, of these uh, municipalities is open to the public. And but others are not, and you know they're doing the best they can. But uh, that was his reaction to uh, a change, which really affected the artists. If it happens in the Hamptons, this guy knows about it. His name is Dan Retiner. He's the editor and publisher of Dan's Papers. His new book is called *In the Hamptons: My 50 Years with Farmers, Fishermen, Artists, Billionaires, and Celebrities*. Dan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me here. I loved it. Dan's book, In the Hamptons, is out now from Harmony Books. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.